I want to thank those who are leading us in worship this morning. I asked uh, Pastor Matt if he could come up with songs related to the love of Christ. I think you did a wonderful job. Thank you very much. All of you. Well, as you can see, Pastor uh, Kevin is not here this morning. Um, he and uh, others from the church are up at Camp Oakhurst for an important meeting. So I am um, on the uh, preacher's reserve bench, and uh, they tap me on the shoulder and ask if I would fill in for them this morning, and I was glad to do that. It is an honor to be able to, uh, to preach, be able to uh, look at God's Word with you. What a privilege and what a huge responsibility it is. So I'm delighted to be here to do this and also to have the text or the scripture that I've selected. Let me give you a little uh, insight to pastors. Um, when they're asked to preach, you know, to fill in for someone, you're not in the middle of a series, so you have to pick something. Well, I picked a text this morning because I need it. I picked a sermon that I needed and I am praying that it will encourage you and that it may be something that you need. Because we're going to talk about the love of Christ. Now this morning I am a bit somber uh, because I just received an email from China where you know or probably know that I go a number of times every year and I've been there for almost... uh, uh, what, 12 times or more? I've gotten to know those people really well. And I got an email that said that one or more of the house churches that I teach in, the uh, Communist Religious Bureau came in, shut down the church, and then took the leaders, the pastor of the church, and have imprisoned them. I know those people so well. They have had me in their homes. I have had dinners with them, with all of their family. And I'm thinking of, of them this morning, to be honest with you. Um, they've been prepared for this, but there's not, how do I say, no matter how prepared you are, it's still a shock to your family when you've been arrested and put in prison. Why? Because they are identified with Christ. So, I'm a bit somber, but if my friends from Shaman, China, could hear me this morning, and when I speak, it would come out in Mandarin, wouldn't that be nice? I would love that. Uh, I would be preaching this sermon to them, as well as to you. Because that's what we need to know. We've got to have an understanding about the love of God to pull us through the most difficult times of our life, to give us hope. Now, there is one essential need I believe we all have, and it is to be loved and to love. And without this, Life seems vain, 
futile and chasing after the wind. However, our life can be transformed when we discover how much God loves us. I believe very few Christians have ever fully comprehended the depth of God's love for them. But those who do change the world. I would like to propose to you this morning some questions from, for your consideration. How do we know? How do we know God's love is unconditional and unequivocal? Can we say without a doubt that nothing, nothing could ever, ever separate us from God's love even when we have rebelled against Him? Have we ever entertained thoughts that God is no longer on our side when everything else in our life seems to be going against us? These are the kinds of questions that call for an answer, a biblical answer. This morning we're going to be looking at Romans chapter 8, verse 31 through 39. If you have your Bible, your cell phone, your iPad, your computer, whatever you have, please turn there because as we are going through our text this morning, you have also an outline in the worship folder. You could take your notes on there as you're looking at the text. But I want you to see that what we're going to discover are not my words or my thoughts. I think as much as possible, they're taken from the text. And that's the most important thing. Now, one of the best ways to teach is to ask questions. And Jesus was a master teacher. And he taught by asking questions. And he challenged human attitudes, presuppositions, as well as clarify divine truth by asking questions. For example, Jesus asked this very profound question in Matthew eight thirty-eight: For what does it profit or what gain is there to a man to gain the whole world and forfeit or lose his soul? That is worthy to ponder. But Jesus asked many other questions. He asked them of his followers then. I think he would ask them here today as well. Who do you say I am? Why are you so afraid? Do you love me more than these or other things? And why do you doubt me? Are you going to leave me as well? And what does the scripture say? You see, these are the profound questions that Jesus asked. Then And he asked us now. 
The Apostle Paul also asked questions. He asked questions to teach us, in particular, about God's love. In Romans chapter 8, he asked six rhetorical questions. Questions asked with an answer in mind. They are asked to give us a better understanding of God's unfathomable love. These questions were asked to persuade us that nothing at any time can ever, ever separate us from God and his love. I think of Jesus' question, why do you doubt me? If Paul were here this morning, and wouldn't that be fun? Those who are up at Camp Oakhurst would be missing out big time, I'll tell you. If he were here, I would like to ask him a series of questions related to the love of God. Paul, are we to understand from reading Romans, your letter, that our trials, our tribulations, don't necessarily mean we have fallen out of your favor or God's favor? Paul, I'd appreciate an answer to this question. Does God love us more? Does God love us more when we're performing good works than when we are struggling in the flesh? Do you understand the question? Brother Paul, can we be sure? Can we be sure the Lord will never let us go when everything around us seems to be slipping away? Paul, how can we be confident that God is working all things together for our good to those who love him when we can't see any good in the midst of our present trials. And what assurance do we have of a glorious future when everything today seems dark and foreboding? Wouldn't you love to have the apostle here to ask those questions and hear his answer? Well, He's here in the scriptures. (laughs) And he's answered those questions in our text. Now, he gives to us a series of six rhetorical questions, but they are based upon or around these four, what I call stunning truths about the love of God. Here they are, and we'll look at each one. First, God is for his elect. I use the word elect, the name elect, because he uses it several times in our text. That's who he refers to us as. God is for us, in other words. God justified or declared right his elect, his church, his people. God loves his elect. God loves his people. And God's elect are conquerors. 
Now, if you were living in Rome at this day and you got that letter, it might mean something different for you. Or if you lived in Shaman, China, and you read this, you would grab hold of those truths and say, is that true? Is that really true for me and my family? Let's explore these things together. What would it take for anyone here this morning who doesn't feel loved or cared for by God to persuade you that God's love is infinite, unconditional, sovereign, immutable, and eternal? That's what we're going to attempt to do. Now here's the first bold affirmation that God is for his elect. Personalize, God is for me. God is for us. And in our text, in Romans 8, verses 31 to 32, this is how he begins his section. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can, and we'll add, really be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him, not also with him graciously give us all things? Paul has packed a lot of truth into those verses. And to teach what it means, he begins with a question. Well, what should we say to these things? Well, what things is he referring to? I believe he is summarizing all that he has written in the first eight chapters of Romans. For example, we've learned some incredible things so far in this book. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. However, in chapter 5, we learn that now we have peace with God and we stand in His grace with hope of glory. Certainly, he is also here calling us back to the beginning of chapter 8, where he told us, gave us this absolutely stunning truth. There is therefore now no condemnation for those in Jesus Christ. Have you ever contemplated what that really means? He's going to explain it here in our text. Listen to Paul's second question. You see, each question is sort of clarifying what he said. His second question is, if God is for us, who is against us? This is a transformational truth. Because before we came to faith, In Christ, Paul tells us in Romans, we were God's enemies. That's who we were before 
we came to faith by the ministry of the Word and the Spirit. We were God's enemies, and yet what does he tell us later? We are now his beloved children. Amen? Once we were against God, and now we are told he's on our side. And he's working for our good. Always. Once we were children of wrath. And now we are declared righteous. Once we face life alone. And now Christ goes before us. Once we were not of the covenant of God. And now we are called his covenant people. Once we were spiritual orphans, begging in the world, but now we're heirs, heirs of Christ. So if God is really fully committed to us, we can be confident Be confident that nothing can ever enter our lives without it first going through Christ. Anything that you are facing today, Christ has either permitted, allowed, or ordained for us. Because he is sovereign. But he's also a sovereign God of love. Um, I hope you're comfortable with this. Can you repeat after me? God is for me. He's not against me. I'm having to repeat these things because as I'm going through, I'm going, really? (laughs) This is real stuff. When you're going through a, a tough time, God is for me? Yes. Well, it doesn't feel like it. You have to go back to what does the word say? God is for me and he's not working against me. These are transformational thoughts. Change the way we look at life. We look at ourselves. Here's the third question. If God did not spare his own son, now watch this one. How shall he not freely give us what? All things. That's amazing truth. It's based upon God's love that sent his son that none of us should perish but have everlasting life. Paul is answering another question behind this question. It's one of the great truths of the Bible, of the gospel. How do we know then that God does Love us. And he's basically answering it with a question. His logic is, if God didn't spare his own son by sending him, that is Christ, to die on the cross for our sin, then we can be confident he will freely provide everything we need. And I didn't say everything we want. Now the Bible reminds us over and over again of this truth. 
I'll just take a few. Psalm 37, 4. Delight yourself in the Lord and what? And he will give you the desires of your heart. This is not a promise that everything your heart desires he will give you. But rather what he's saying is that the Lord will give you the desires that you should want. The things that he wants for you. He will not turn us down. He has our best in mind. Psalm 84. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Are some of you praying now for something and you have not received it? Possible? Well, if you don't have it, you may receive it. If you don't have it, you don't need it. (laughs) And if you got it, it may not be good. I've learned that through my prayer life. But that is because of God's love. He wants our best. He's for us. Here's a good text. And my God will supply some of my needs. Every need of yours, says Paul, according to his riches or down from his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Every resource we need and must have are found in Christ and they're available. He'll supply your need. Enough to persevere another day. To have just enough. To find exactly what God wants for you today. You may not know what tomorrow will hold. But he can tell you and give you faith, hope, and perseverance for just the day. You see, this is not just a few scriptures I'm referring to. It comes from around the Bible here. Second Peter. God's divine power has granted, granted to who? Us. Everything pertaining to life and godliness. Our God is not stingy. Our God is so filled with love that he gives us exactly what we need when we need it. And who are these ones that God freely gives all things? Who are the ones that he freely gives grace and love to? Who are those ones? Well, Paul tells us it's not some of us, but what? All of us. All of us. It's not exclusive to the rich, the powerful, or a super spiritual few. It's to all God's children. He shows no partiality. Instead, he loves each and every one of his children the same. And that has been one I've worked on for a number of years. I believe God loved me. But I kind of thought 
I think he loves that guy more than he really does me because look how talented that guy is. Look at all he's accomplished. He must love him for all that he's done. And I've been in a real small church over here trying to get it going and it's just been a struggle. But you would think, you know, like somebody is in greater Los Angeles area has this mega church and I'm over here in a little struggling church plant. Yeah, he's got to love that guy more because look how he's blessed him. And me? I know he loves me. My friends, that is not biblical. Because you're comparing accomplishments and you're not looking at the love of God. It's taken me a long time to get there. I'm still struggling with that notion. He loves each of us the same. God the Father. You know, this one here, if you haven't heard this before, will absolutely blow your mind. How many of you believe that God the Father has perfect, infinite love for his Son? Well, if you read the scriptures, you know that. Okay. How many of you believe Jesus Christ the Son has perfect, intimate love for the Father? Now, think of this. How many of you believe that the Father... And the Son love me just as he loves the Father and the Son. How many believe that? That is, I mean, come on, that is just hard to believe. I can understand how the Father and the Son have this mutual, perfect, infinite love, but then throw me in the middle of that thing? I mean, think about our love that we offer to the Lord. Yike, if it was based on what I contribute, I'd be in a world of hurt. What does he get from me? He gets my sin. He hears my petitions. He hears my repentance. But my love for him, I just wish I could love him like I would like to love him. And the Bible tells me someday I will when we're with Christ. And the cross. If you have any questions about the love of God, look at the cross. It reminds us of God's infinite, sovereign, unconditional, immutable, unchangeable an everlasting, eternal love for each of his people. That's everyone here this morning that calls Christ their Lord and Savior. Therefore, because of these truths, we can face the uncertainties of this world with full confidence, full confidence, that God is working all things Together for our good, as he has said already in this chapter. 
Are you up for repeating again? Say yes. <laughs> God is for me. God will provide for me. This is not a prosperity sermon series here. But it's the promise of God. He'll provide whatever you need because he's driven by this perfect, infinite love for us. Now we come to one of those other magnificent, stunning truths from Paul. God justified his elect. God justified each of us who claim Christ as our Savior. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect or people? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised who is at the right hand of God, who intercedes, who indeed is interceding for us. This is another, if you could put a wall plaque in your house or your bedroom, these are the kinds of things that change the way we think, the way we live. And with each of these stunning truths, he asks a question. Here's the fourth question. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? And his simple answer is, it is God who justifies. The God who has justified me. You see, Paul's logic is, if you agree to what is said in Romans earlier, that God judges those who have sinned against him, if he is the righteous judge who declares the wages of sin are death, then why do we question God now that he has acquitted us and declared us righteous? I mean, you may agree. How many of you agree that God will be the ultimate judge of sin? We do. But think about it, how often do we think about that? If that's true, why isn't it true that you've been justified and therefore you're no longer condemnable? You see what I'm saying? You can't say, well, I hold to this, but I'm not certain about that. Both are true. You see, Christ's righteousness has now been placed on our account, imputed, reckoned to our bankrupt account. This is wonderful. Jesus never failed or sinned. He lived a perfect life of faith for all of us. So who are the ones to bring a charge against us? It's not God. It's us. It's the world. And certainly, it's the devil. This is spoken 
to you, but it's about me. We have to quit beating up on ourselves every time we sin. Repent. Ask for his amazing grace and forgiveness. And then move on by faith. Believing that he has justified me. Sometimes that's where I bog down. I want to live the life that Christ called me to. But I'm a sinner. And when I sin or I don't show the love that I should show to him, I, I kind of bummed out about who I am. But I don't think about who I am in Christ. Believing God's love is unconditional isn't an excuse to live a life of sin. But God's unconditional love is the very reason to live a godly life. The great motivation. And here's why. Why would we want to offend a God who loves us like that? That's the motivation. And our great accuser, Satan, works on that. And have you noticed he has a nasty habit of uh, slandering the saints? He belittles, he berates God's children when they face trials and temptations. When we sin, he repeatedly whispers in our ears and reminds us of our failures to discourage and to defeat us. That's one of his great weapons. Defeat the saints by discouragement of their own sinfulness, which he's enticing. Instead, we need to listen to the whisper of the Holy Spirit as he reminds us of our sonship in Christ. Now, when the devil comes prowling around, be bold. Defy him. When he keeps plaguing you with doubt and temptation, depression, discouragement, tell him this. I have been declared righteous by faith in Christ alone. By faith alone. Therefore, if you have any complaints about me, take it up with my Savior. Because he is for me and has declared me, whether you believe it or not, declared me righteous. So out of here. I don't want to hear your stuff. Fifth question. So then who does condemn God's elect? And again, the answer is going to be clear, concise, but definitely certain. It isn't God. We are our worst enemies. 
when it comes to self-condemnation. Loathing ourselves. Just admit it. You're not everything you want to be. Okay? That's a hard thing. I'd like to be these things. I would like to be a a super saint, if you would. I'm just just not there. And I'm not going to be there until I'm with the super saints in heaven. Until then, I'm with you guys. (laughs) It's us. Justified sinners. Can you handle that? Imperfect? Falling short? Groveling? (laughs) And yet, as we'll see, more than conquers. And it doesn't help that the evil one keeps working away at us. When he bears down, we go back to Scripture. Remember how this chapter starts? Remember he said, and what do we say to these things? Well, here's what we say. There is therefore, read with me. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. It is God who justifies the elect. You, me. And what is the basis of our confidence that we are justified? Well, Paul reminds us that Jesus died for us and is risen from the dead. Let me ask another question of you. Do you believe Jesus died on the cross, was raised from the dead on the third day, is now seated on the throne of heaven, ruling and reigning over all things, and is waiting to come back again to judge the world and, re- and reward the saints. How many of you believe that's true? If so, that's evidence of God's sovereign grace that we are justified. If you believe that. And Jesus is presently at the right hand of God, and he is always interceding, always on our side, always wanting what's best, always coming, hearing our prayers, and always uh, interceding for our, our benefit, our good. The scriptures again reassure us of this, Hebrews 7. Christ is able to save to the uttermost, or to the end, those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives, or he's eternal, to make intercession for them. I love to be able to say these things. I love it when pastors can say always and never, because there's hardly any opportunities for that, and yet there is in the scripture. There is never a moment we don't have an advocate with the Father. There is never a moment we don't have the Holy Spirit indwelling and reaffirming our sonship. There is never a moment we aren't cared for by God because He is for us and has justified us. Christ intended for His people to think much about his love and his grace. We all have the need 
to be loved and to love. And guess what? Christ fulfills that need. You are loved. And now he's given to us this opportunity to love him back. I thought about love this week and I had a good time thinking about it, quite honestly. I grew up knowing that my father loved me. Some of you may not have that experience. I was blessed. When I was almost two years old, my dad was in World War II, somewhere on a ship in the South Pacific. And from there, he used to frequently write letters to my mom and to me, telling me how much he missed me and loved me. And to this day, I have his letters. I had a chance to just kind of go through some of those again. And one of his letters that he gave me, I still have, contains a piece of petrified, wrapped chewing gum (laughs) that he sent as a gift. That's all he had. And when I read his letters, I feel loved. I also have a number of home movies. They were taken, one particular reel was taken in the backyard when my dad came home. And uh, he was playing with me. In one clip, I saw myself, little guy about, just a little bit, about two years old. I was playing and I fell over backwards into a large galvanized washing bin. I went down, and I wasn't going to say out, but certainly down, and under. And I couldn't get out. And then there is this blur across the scene. And you know who it is? It's my dad. I got a picture of that. He reaches down, he picks me up, and he holds me in his arms. And when I look at his face, I thought, He really loved me then. He's always loved me. In his latter years, failing years of health, he used to call me every week. And he'd ask, Hey, Johnny. How you doing? He would call me Johnny. Johnny comes marching home again. Okay, sorry. Okay. That's how I got the name. How you doing? And I said, you know, Dad, I'm doing okay. Uh, and we'd talk about his grandchildren, my kids. And we'd talk about the church and how things are going. And then I'd ask, well, Dad, how are you? And he'd say, Fine. But I just called to what? To tell you I love you. And I can honestly say to you this morning, 
I miss my dad. I miss his constant affirming love for me. Why? Because I still have a deep need to be loved and to love. And my father provided that for me. And so does my heavenly father. Here we go. God is for me. Excuse me? Let's do it again. God will. God has. Those truths will transform the way you live and the way you think. Especially when you're going through difficult times. In Paul's letter. Here in this chapter. He comes to a place as if he was in a great opera. And these last verses of this section in chapter 8 are like an all-out fortissimo finale. With his hair whipped over backwards. He's, He's going for it. The strings are playing. The horns are blowing. The drums are beating. The piano is pounding. The choir is belting it out. And yes, the fat lady is singing at the top of her voice. Verses 35 and through 39 is the final and third movement in this great chapter. There's reason for God's children to celebrate the triumph of grace. Here we find the text. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation... And I think of my friends, China today, or distress, persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. These are words from Paul that he's taken from Scripture. That's why he asks his next question. You see, God loves his elect. He loves us. So that comes to this question. Who shall separate us from God's love? Certainly not tribulations, or means pressures, nor distress, nor persecution, nor famine nor nakedness, nor peril. Even the threat. He hasn't abandoned us. Even though it may feel that way. That's why he quotes that psalm. Because he's saying, you know what, brothers and sisters in Rome, that is my verse. That's my apostolic verse. That's my life testimony. I'm going through all these things For your sake. And guess what? I've never been separated from God and his love. 
God's love cannot be blocked out by the darkness of the night or hindered by the bars of prison. Paul prayed for God's elect in Ephesians. May Christ dwell in your hearts through faith that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend, to understand with all the saints what is the breadth, the length, the height, and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with the fullness of God. That's his prayer for the church. That's his prayer for the saints. God's love is infinite. It is sovereign. It is unconditional. It is immutable. And it is eternal. We will never begin to plumb the depths of God's love or to be able to reach the heights of his love. It can only be measured by the life and the love of Christ. By the cross. We're not victims. God's elect are conquerors. You're going through pestilence, persecution, peril, and why? Does God love me? Well, yes, he does. No, he says. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, in particular fallen angels, demons, nor rulers on the earth or rulers under the earth, nor things present, nor anything to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to what? Separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? Right now, if we had a choir, we would say, it's now time for the Hallelujah Chorus. Just step right on in. You see, God's elect are assured of his love. He tells us we're more than conquerors. By the way, in the Greek, that's just one word. It's one word for people who are struggling with their self-worth, their self-confidence, discouragement, depression. Now listen closely to Paul's encouragement. This word, more than conquerors, has two parts. The first word is more, which means hyper, like one of your kids. Hyper, which means above and beyond, superior to all others, top-notched, unsurpassed, unequaled, and unrivaled. We are more than, we're hyper. More than. In Christ, we're more than you think you are. In Christ, you're a match 
for anything that comes your way. Then the second word that links up to it, hyper, nikos, conquer. You know what that word is also? On my running jogger shirt, you know what it says? Nike, nikos. You're a nikos. We're nikoses. You see, that's God's brand for us. We're Nikes. To assure us that we are overcomers. We're conquerors. We're champions. We're victors. We're masters. Because Christ is everything for us. When both of these words are put together, they form a word which declares that in Jesus Christ we are capable of being stupendous overcomers. Even if you're going through the things that he said, there's hope. You see, the battle still rages on the earth, but the war of sin and death has already been won. It's been won by Christ. And his triumph is now ours. This has to be one of my favorite all-time verses as a veteran pastor because there are many times I did not feel triumphant. Now, thanks be to God who once in a while leads us in triumph. Oh, excuse me. I, I misheard that. Now, thanks be to God who, what? Always. He's always leading us in triumph in Christ. Yeah, but I just failed big time. He's still leading. And he can use even your mistakes, your failures and inadequacies. He can use them for good. To be overcomers. Not giving up. God's elect will never, ever be separated from God's love. He's already established that. God's love will conquer anything that opposes us. Death, life, angels, persecution, powers, height, depth, created things. You know, see, Jesus made another promise. He says, Nothing could ever snatch you, my sheep, out of my hand. Nothing. Because he's greater than all our adversities and adversaries. We are his. And he is ours. Whether we live or die. And if we die, what? We're swallowed up into life greater than anything we've had here. And to be absent from the body is what? To be present with the Lord. That's sounding pretty good to me right now. Like I said, I'm not rushing it, but that's sounding really good. Our greatest days, my friends, are yet ahead.
and beyond the veil of death. So what would it take to convince anyone here this morning of God's love? That it is infinite, it is sovereign, it is unconditional, it is immutable, never changes, and it's eternal. And I would point you to the symbol we have, the cross. If he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, will he not also by Christ freely give us all things? Salvation is a free gift. Forgiveness is freely offered to those who call upon the name of the Lord. I want you to keep this in mind. We all have a need. We all have a need to be loved and to love. And if you said, well, you know, all my needs are not being met by my spouse or by the church or by any number of people, I fully understand But Christ has filled that need. People have been singing about the love of God. We sang about it this morning. Listen to these words. The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. The guilty pair, Adam and Eve, bowed down with care. And God gave his son to win his erring child. He reconciled and pardoned from his sin. Could we, with ink, the ocean fill? And with the skies of parchment made, were every stalk on earth a quill, uh, like a pin, and every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above would drain the oceans dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. Oh, love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong. It shall forevermore endure the saints and angels' song. And in that song, it also says, hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Before we pray, I want these thoughts to be in your mind, be in my mind. God is for me. God will. God has. God has. Do you believe that's true? Now go conquer the world.
I'll be behind you a little bit, but I'll follow. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your overwhelming love for us. So undeserving. And yet, you pour your love out on the likes of us. It's all about you, your love, your grace, your mercy. So here we are seated in this place, this Sunday morning. And we have just looked at one of the greatest scriptures in all of the Bible. We have considered some of the most transforming truths that are available today. We believe that you are for us. That you have justified us. That you love us. We believe that you will provide. And we believe as well. That we are loved. Help us to understand your love even when we don't feel it. Forgive us of the lack of love we have for you and for others. And yet even though we lack the love we wish. Thank you Father that your love is unconditional. To love the likes of an unloving justified sinner. Bless your people today. As they go out. I pray for our brothers and sisters. This morning in China. Who are not sure that their church will be open. Who are wondering about their pastor. And their leaders. And if anybody is going to come and arrest them. You understood that. Paul lived it. And now we can claim it. That we are now in Christ more than conquerors. We're hyper. Hyper Nikos. We can be overcomers in Christ. Encourage your people as they go. May you bless this church. We thank you for it. If there's anyone here this morning who does not know you, as their Savior, have not come to faith, may the word that is spoken, the words that are written on the page, do a work. And may they call upon the name of the Lord, and they shall be saved. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.